0: Good morning, people of God. Always good to see your serious, smiling, and sometimes sleepy faces. If you're a visitor, let me add to the welcome. Now, as most of you know, we are in a series right now on God, grace, and money. That's not perhaps the topic that's at the top of our list. In fact, it's a topic that many of us, at least if you're like me, would prefer to keep at arm's length. I once heard about a church that had an interesting membership requirement. Anyone who wanted wanted to commit to that community uh, had to get up in front of the whole congregation and not only make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but also profess their annual income. So that's what we're going to do today. Who wants to go first? (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, of course. But if you're like me, the thought of doing that is a little bit discomforting, understatement of the year, right? A little bit discomforting. And that is precisely why we need to slow down from time to time, And let God talk to us about money. It's not good to live in secrecy and fear. Jesus talks about money a lot, more than sex, in fact. Why do you think that is? Because money can affect evils in our life to which we are blind. That's why Jesus in Luke 12 says this, Watch out for all forms of greed. Now, Jesus doesn't say that about rage or about adultery or other things, not because they don't matter. The difference lies elsewhere. I mean, if you're raging, if you're yelling at other people in the traffic, you know you've got some anger issues. And if you're committing adultery, right, you don't look at the person in your arms and say, gosh, you're not my wife. You know that. Money sins are different. They're more subtle. And in contrast to things like rage and adultery and other things, we almost never know that we're guilty of greed and materialism. We're blind to it. I've been a community group leader in Vancouver for five or six years now. And every group that I've been a leader in, we've taken time to confess our weaknesses, our struggles, our sins. I don't think I've ever heard anyone in that time, myself included, confess to struggle with greed and materialism. Have you? I suspect that we tend to exonerate ourselves from greed and materialism because we look around and we see all these people, especially in a place like Vancouver, who spend an awful lot of money on themselves. It's very easy to do. And by comparison, we say, well, we spend less on ourselves, and so therefore we feel more frugal and less materialistic. But God says, not so fast. He says you need to be extra careful when it comes to money because it can blind you to certain evils in your life. And this means if you take the Bible seriously, if you take the passages we've been looking at for the past few weeks seriously, you should make it your working thesis that what the Bible says about money is also true for you. In other words, it's safe to assume, more than safe to assume, that when it comes to money, we all need to make change. Me and you and the other person in the pew. We all need to make change. Last week, we talked about Christian generosity. We said it should be expansive. It should be voluntary. It should be sacrificial. All of that is a sign of God's grace at work in our lives. Today, we're going to hone in a little bit on a specific form of Christian generosity, the form of tithing. Now, tithing refers to our giving to the local church, wherever we may be and whatever church it may be, giving to the local church for the diverse works of ministry. Let me say something, a quick interjection. If you're a guest today, you you don't need to clutch your purse. Nobody invited you here to give lots of money. As Alistair said earlier, we want you to receive today. We want you to receive from this community. Now, Malachi 3 brings a strong word on tithing. That, too, is an understatement. And the simple thesis that emerges out of these verses from Malachi chapter 3 is this, is that God wants us to tithe and that God will make it possible for us to tithe. God wants us to tithe. God will make it possible for us to tithe. And we're going to unpack that statement by thinking a bit about the meaning of the tithe, the amount of the tithe, and the promise of the tithe. The meaning, the amount, and the promise. The meaning of the tithe. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes, and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse, and you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, according to these verses, the meaning of tithing lies in two things. It lies, number one, in a sane and sober view of reality, and number two, it lies in faith that counts. A sane and sober view of reality and a faith that counts. In the middle of these verses, we see a little repartee. God says, I've been robbed, and the people are stunned. What do you mean? How how do we rob you? You're God, after all. How do we rob you? God clarifies. When you don't tithe... You're withholding what is mine. You're forgetting yourself. You're confused. You're forgetting that everything that you have in this life is a gift from me. Yes, we do. We all do that. How many of you are familiar with Malcolm Gladwell, no doubt? One of his recent books, Outliers, I'm a huge fan of Gladwell. One of his recent books, Outliers, vigorously challenges conventional theories of human success and achievement. In this book, Gladwell wants to debunk the tendency to cling to the idea that our success and our achievement is largely a function of individual merit. That's what the book is about. Now, one of his interesting arguments involves hockey players. He notes that professional hockey players are, are born disproportionately earlier in the year, earlier in the calendar year. And that makes them the oldest children in the hockey league and therefore they tend to be a bit bigger a bit stronger and a bit better coordinated than their peers. And as a result of that, they get more attention, they get more coaching, they get more reinforcement, and they get more self-confidence along the way. In a word, they are advantaged. And that means being a hockey player, a hockey all-star, isn't just about personal achievement and innate talent. But personal achievement and talent and personal diligence, those are things that we often turn to first to explain our successes, right? Humans have a bad habit of overcrediting ourselves. I mean, just think about your resumes, your CVs, curriculum vanitas, your curriculum vitae. Sorry. <clears throat> I mean, a resume is nothing more than a, a, a story of why we're qualified to do something, right? Yet, in telling that story, there is no place, there's no heading for all the help we received along the way. We don't have that heading in our resume, do we? Right? There's, no, there's no heading for your family of birth. There's a lot to do with our success. There's, there's no space for people who have sacrificed for us. There's no space to list all the lucky breaks or providential breaks that we have received. That's our default way of operating and explaining things. And, and when we explain our success and achievement that way, it does not usually tend to lead to generosity. Right? That's why people who are more accomplished and grow in wealth tend to give less as a percentage as that growth happens. Look at the statistics. You have Google. They think the gifts are theirs. Do we? In Malachi Malachi 3, God is saying the same thing. In terms of what our lives produce, God gets more credit than us. We have worked hard. We've had opportunities. You've enjoyed health. You've landed in the right circumstances that God has provided. That is a bigger factor in all that we have and possess than we sometimes care to admit. That is a sane and sober view of reality. And when you have a sane and sober view of reality, you cannot look at all that you have and say, mine. For all you Lord of the Rings people, you can't have dragon fever. You can't say, mine. Wake up. That's what God is saying here. Life is a gift. Everything that we have is God's. And if you don't realize it now, you will when you die. See, these verses are telling us that our tithing, our giving to the church, isn't so much about us having big hearts. It's actually much more about God having a big heart towards us, which is the source of all the gifts we have in this life. That's what tithing's about. At the same time, all tithing also reflects a faith that counts. Look at verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And look also at verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now implicit in these verses, as the commentators note, there are two forms of faith being contrasted, right? God's basically telling his people, you've broken faith. And in verse 8, they say, how? They're shocked, right? What's going on here? What the people mean is this. They mean, God, we're not atheists. We believe you exist. But what God means is more something like this. Faith that counts must follow my statutes. It entails concrete trust that takes action. Sure, you're not atheist, but you're not Christians either, or at least you're not acting like it. Now, when it comes to how money, our use of money, fits into faith that counts, there are two words in this text that we need to pay attention to. The word statutes, verse seven, the word storehouses, verse ten statutes. That's just a reference to God's Word and law in the Old Testament. And guess what? In God's Word and God's law, He doesn't just call us to be generous. He actually tells us how to be generous, where to be generous. A big part of that is tithing, giving to the work of God's ministry through His people. And then the second clue is that word storehouse, verse 10. That refers to the room in the ancient temple in Jerusalem where all the offerings and tithe would be collected. And everything in that room was used to to pay for the worship at the temple, to take care of the priests and other people that work there, and to provide for the poor in Israel. That's the work of ministry. That is God's passion and God's priority. God is saying, give there. I want you to give there. Now, how does this connect to our situation? How does faith that counts connect to us right here and now? Faith faith that counts, I want to put it this way. It means you love what God loves. It means you embrace the thing that God embraces you pursue the things that are close to God's heart, and you give for God's purposes out of your wealth. We're like, when it comes to our relationship with God and all that we have, we're like financial managers. right? We are to do what God tells us to do with God's money. If we don't do that, it's called fraud. That's the logic that's implicit in these verses. All of this should be one of our values at St. Peter's, and not just an espoused value. For those that have been at the value section, this should be an actual value, something we do together. Faith that counts is not just an inner sentiment. It is not a like on the Facebook page. It's got to be tangible. It's got to be a tithe. That's what we're reading here. In other words, tithing is like a barometer for the authenticity of our faith. Martin Luther, the great reformer, really hits the nail on this head when he says this, a religion that gives nothing. Costs nothing and suffers nothing is worth nothing. That's the same thing God is saying here in Malachi. Now, in case you found that difficult, let me put a a prelude to what I'm about to say. I've I've got to talk to you about something difficult now. The text requires it. If our use of money as individuals in a community is not shaped by a sane and sober view of reality, if it is not shaped and expressed through faith that counts, then God says we are being callous and inhumane. That may sound a bit extreme, but in two two piercing ways, that is what we discover here in Malachi chapter 3. In verses 8 and 9, there's a word that is translated as rob. It appears four times, I think. Now, that word does not just mean to withhold or to refrain from giving. It means to defraud. It means to spoil or plunder. That is what that Hebrew word means. That is the term that God applies to his people when they refuse to tithe. You are defrauding, you are spoiling, you are plundering. That's not something that we like to think of ourselves as doing. In other words, if you're in God's people, if you're part of God's people and you are chronically not supporting God's ministry through the church, then you're adding to the mess of the world. It's not just a harmless lapse. It's a betrayal. This is very strong language here. If you're not swimming upstream, you're floating downstream. The same point is made again in verse 9. You see that word nation? looks like a harmless word. Guess what? It's not. It's not a harmless word. In the Old Testament, that's a Hebrew word that refers to people who are not part of God's family. Right? That's a label for humans who are outside of God's people, for humans who are uninvolved with God's redemptive work in the world. Malachi applies that term to God's people right here in chapter 3. It's an insult. He's saying, when you refuse to tithe, you are as far from God as Germany was from England in World War II. That's what he's saying. I, I realize this is a tough word. It's a, it, this was a tough study sermon to prepare for, right? But I feel that I am obligated to say that because that is what the text says. I realize this way of thinking about not tithing is not the way that we think about not tithing, but it is the way that God can think about not tithing. All right, let's turn to something lighter, the amount of the tithe. Don't you just love sermons on money? (laughs) The word tithe, which appears in verse 8 and verse 10, is just a Hebrew word that means a tenth part, right? In the Old Testament, God causes people to give 10% of their annual earnings to the work of ministry. You can read about it in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and many other places in the Old Testament. If you want to look it up, come to me afterwards, I'll give you an extensive list. The tithe in the Old Testament was about getting on board with God's purposes. And it was also about showing reliance on God, that's what it meant. Let me clear up a common misconception. Tithing is never about buying your way into God's favor, right? That is a perversion of everything the Old and the New Testament say. Truth be told, I think God calls us to tithe as an act of faith because God knows what we also know. More than anything else, the way we use our money reveals our priorities, our values, our allegiances, our sense of security. In other words, if you want to know what people in this community really believe about what we sing and say here at church, go look at their credit card statement. That'll tell you. That's what the tithe does. So what can we say about the amount today? It was 10% in the Old Testament. What can we say about the amount today? That's the million-dollar question this morning. When it comes to the Old Testament tithing standard, God lets us off the hook by raising the bar for generosity in general. Sorry, I know that was probably a disappointing statement for some of you, and for others you might be rejoicing. let lets us off the hook by raising the bar for generosity in general. Tithing is not really mentioned in the New Testament. In fact, it only comes up a few times so far as I can tell. Two of them are in Luke, chapter 11 and chapter 18. And in both of those cases, Jesus is dealing with some religious folks. He's chatting to some religious folks who were extremely fastidious about their tithing. And Jesus criticizes their tithing but he doesn't criticize the tithe itself. You have to look carefully at these words. The problem isn't with the amount of their giving, it's with their attitude. Right? They were smug and complacent in their tithing. This is how they were thinking. We gave our 10%, so we have shown our godliness. Now back off. Right? That's their attitude. That's what Jesus is critiquing. And Jesus says, think again. You're not sacrificially sowing into the kingdom. You're just buying your conscience. That's what he says to them you still think that what you have is more yours than God's. That's what Jesus says. Now, beyond those few examples, the New Testament is relatively silent on the subject of tithing, but we should not draw the wrong conclusion from that silence. Commentators say that the New Testament does not fixate on 10% because it does not want Christian generosity to become legalistic. If you're legalistic, you'll never give more than 10%. That's the problem. To quote one great Christian missionary thinker, E. Stanley Jones, the teaching that a person should give one-tenth of his money to God and then be free to use the nine-tenths for himself is utterly dangerous. I think Jesus would concur. Here's the deal. It's silly and foolish to conclude that the standard for giving and generosity and tithing in terms of our money and our time for Christians, people with greater privileges and greater blessings compared to God's Old Testament people, It's greater to think it would be less. I mean, it's foolish and silly to think it would be less. Think it would be less than it was in the Old Testament. That doesn't make any sense. So if you want to speak about 10%, if you're one of those people who likes percentages, think of it as a radical minimum, if you want to. Now inversely, how does this kick in inversely? It also avoids another type of legalism, right? And this benefits those of us and many in our church with very tight budgets, right? 10% is not feasible for some of you, I know that, right? But some gesture of sacrificial giving is, right? I want you to think about that today. I want you to invite God to help you think about that. For some people in here, five or 10 bucks a week could be hugely sacrificial. So start there and know as you do that with you, God is well pleased. And let me add something here. All of our giving as Christians, it does not all have to go to the local church, I know budget committees get mad when pastors say things like this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It doesn't all have to go to the local church, right? We work alongside lots of other organizations in Vancouver and internationally that do kingdom work, so support them too. Support them too, right? I mean, in a larger sense, the problem isn't that people aren't giving enough to the church. The problem is that people are not giving in biblical proportions and with biblical joy. That's the real problem. At the same time, let me say this. I do think that we should always prioritize our giving, our tithing to the local church, right? Because we're involved in works of love and mercy and justice. That is key, right? But we also do things that other good organizations don't. And in this sense, the church is unique. It is unique, right? We have an unmatched role in the work of the kingdom. And so, therefore, giving, tithing, should be prioritized to the church, To be a Christian is to know that salvation is not about making everyone middle class. It's a lot more than that. It's about deep inner heart change through the ministry of God's Word and God's Spirit. And the local church is uniquely purposed for that work. That's that's how God wants to do it. That's our business. That's why we prioritize giving to the local church. Now for those of you who like things concrete I want some take home today, let me give you a little bit of application on this. Even when you desire to start tithing, it can be tricky and difficult. Believe me, I know. So how do we get there? How do you get there? This may be the most spiritually important thing that some of you do this year. What I offer here comes from my own ongoing efforts, my efforts of my wife and I to be consistent and radical in our tithing and giving. Three things. Number one, do it first. Consider setting up a deduction or a transaction to your tithing the day you get paid. Right or every time you get paid, put it in an envelope, do an automated thing, write a check, whatever it works for you. Right? If you wait, there's never much left, but if you do it first, there's always enough. That's been our experience. Number two, use tools. Often we think we can't afford to tithe, right? But there is a bias in that thinking. I have to discover that bias in my own in my own thinking, correct that bias, right? Use, the, there's a new app called Mint. I know some people in this church are using Mint. Use Mint, right? Track your expenses, right? You can do that and see if the tithing that you think is impossible is actually possible, right? You'd be surprised. I have been surprised by this. Get other people involved, right? Talk about things that we don't often talk about, like how we spend our money, right? Seek some input from others. Talk to people who are a few steps further along about how they've learned to tithe, right? Let them see your Mint report. Is there an issue? Who knows? But as with a doctor, it's very good to get a second opinion. (laughs) And number three, if you want a principle, right? If you like principles, right? We can't have the, you must do 10% principle. That principle doesn't work anymore, right? But if you want a principle, here's one for you. Figure out what you need to live and then give everything else away. To quote John Wesley, we we shouldn't ask how much we should give God. We should ask how much we should keep for ourselves. Now don't freak out, okay? Don't freak out. What you need to live can include your food, your clothing, your shelter, it it can include saving for retirement, education, it can even include a vacation once every 10 years. Okay? (laughs) Generous. Don't freak out. Here's the thing, this orientation, right? This different way of thinking, take what we need and then give the rest, right? It is resisting the default tendency of our culture whereby wage increases almost always are accompanied by lifestyle increases. Perhaps that's why the CRA, according to my friend who's a Crown Prosecutor, tends to automatically audit people who give upwards of 10% away. They suspect something. People don't do that. Christians do. You should be honored to get audited. <laughs> we gotta break out We've got to break the endless correlation between increased income and increased standard of living. We've got to tear that down, just like that Berlin Wall, we've got to tear it down. That will free you to tithe. And regardless of the dollar amount, you do something sacrificially, you will be legendary in the kingdom of God. I want to tell you two stories here. First, that outlook, take what you need and give the rest, that is what made Alpha last time possible. I don't think many of you know this story. Last summer, our budget was pretty lean. At one point, we were having sustained conversations about canceling alpha or not being able to do it in a neutral space. And then all of a sudden, someone came into the picture, and they agreed to sponsor it. And along the way, that person informed us that their rule of life is to take what they need from their salary and then to give everything else away. It's a lot more than 10%. Now, I'm not saying that because I want you to feel guilty. I want you to feel inspired. Maybe some of you can do that one day. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. Another story, that outlook of radical generosity, giving beyond what you, everything beyond what you need, that's what makes it possible for us to exist. That's what makes it possible for me, for Derek, and for Al, uh, Alistair to be here. Right? Our stipends have been paid for the last few years by Christians all over the world and some Christians just a mile away, in fact. And, and those are men and women who don't just give 10%, right? They give beyond. They give what they don't need and they do it with joy. I remember one chat when I was writing this sermon this week. A beautiful memory came to my mind. I remember a chat I had with some supporters of mine three years ago when I was getting ready to come on board and start helping at St. Peter's. I wrote them a letter. I called them three weeks later to follow up. And you know what they said to me when they picked up the phone? It's the first thing that came out of their mouth. They said, thank you for asking us. We are honored. That was a dazzling moment. You know what I said inside my mind to myself? I prayed. I said, Lord, I want to be like that. Make me like that. Give me a reputation for that kind of generosity. That's what I pray. We can give more than we think, and with what we give, God can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Make change. Be persistent with it, but also be patient with yourself. Be patient with yourself. God is patient with us in this area. See, from one angle, tithing is something we grow into. right? I like to, I can, I like to compare it to the process of, of someone who's an alcoholic coming into sobriety, right? You can have a desire to be sober, but there are going to be times when you really want to have a drink. You choose not to, regardless of how you feel, because your desire to be sober is stronger. Tithing, learning to tithe, growing in tithing can be a little bit like that, right? We're not always inclined emotionally, right? We're not always inclined. Sometimes we fall into fear. We get scared. but We choose to act in accordance with the fact that Jesus has created us and saved us to be people who are generous and to be part of his church. Let's come now to the great good news of this passage, the promise of the tithe. God calls his people to tithe. It's very clear from what Malachi says. It's a tall order, and it feels extra tall for some people in the room right now. So here's the good news. Some of you might be wanting to bite your nails even. I know. Here's the good news, God loves us, and God knows this, and that is why God says something astounding. He says, I will make it possible for you to tithe. I will make it possible for you to tithe. Look at verses 10 and 11. Bring that full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food, and put me to the test, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until you have no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruit of your soil, and so that the vine of your field Will bear fruit. In this passage, God is saying, If you start tithing, I will make sure you finish. And I will do that through provision and through protection. So let's explore these promises. If you've been dozing, now is a really good time to wake up. Returning to the promises of God. Provision. God says, Bring your tithe. He says, Put me to the test. If I will not pour down blessing until you have no more need. Right, what Malachi is saying here echoes right in 2 Corinthians 9, as Alistair just read. says, Paul, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. You'll be enriched to be generous in every way. These are odd but beautiful statements. God is basically saying, I want you to give and I'll give you what you need to give. I mean, that's the logic of this passage here, right? In other words, tithing people will be given from God what they need to tithe. This is, I think, one of the few, if not only, places in the Bible where we are invited to test God, to test God. Normally, we're not supposed to do that. Yet God says, when it comes to tithing, you think you can't just live on 90 percent. You think you can't live on anything less than pretty much all of your salary. That's false. That's false. Our tithing honors God, and in turn, God says he will honor us. He will give us blessings. He will make sure our needs are met. In fact, we may just end up with more at our disposal than we were otherwise trying to withhold. That's what's being said. You want to try it? Folks, it's time to get out of the boat. It's time to start walking on the water. I know we can feel very secure in that boat, but imagine how secure you will feel when you're walking on water. That's more security than any boat will ever give you. But You will never know this reality if you stay sitting in the boat. God delivers. I have never, never, never heard of someone who committed to tithe and who, as a result, didn't have the necessities of life. And I called some older Christians, and they hadn't either. And I know this from experience, too. Eight years ago, I came back to Christ. I was in a church. I was very involved, very committed. But for the first year, I didn't tithe. It wasn't really on my radar. I wasn't earning a lot of money, either. In the second year, I was convicted about that in a good way, godly conviction. So I started to tithe a little bit. And then I came across this passage from Malachi and some other ones like it, in the Gospels and Corinthians, and I decided to test God. I, I decided to retroactively tithe for the first year that I had skipped. It was not easy, because I was a regular old frugal MacDougall back then, let me tell you. Just call my sisters. Right? I was very fearful. And you know what? i got to confess. I actually wanted to prove God wrong. But also wanted to see his power, and I did see it. Contrary to all my anxieties and fears, I didn't wind up in destitution. I didn't wind up in a basement room any worse than the one I was already living in. I didn't starve to death, which is why I'm still here. I did lose a little bit of weight. And I didn't even wind up with all the student debt that I was expecting to accrue during that time. I'll tell you that story later if you want me to. God is rich and generous. That doesn't mean he's going to shower us with green. My name is not Creflo Dollar, it's Reverend Revel. (laughs) But God will make provision for those who follow where he leads. God also promises protection from the devourer. Look at verse 11. This is a very interesting and somewhat enigmatic verse. I will rebuke the devourer from you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. Now, at the time when Malachi wrote, this was a reference to some locust or some sort of crop-destroying pestilence. That's part of the curse that is alluded to in verse 9. Now, most of us in this room aren't farmers, though I am at heart. Most of us in this room aren't farmers. What does this this verse say to us? I'm very grateful to Daryl Johnson, the former preacher at First Baptist, for helping me think through this verse and this passage a few weeks ago. I spent some time with him. And what I learned was this, the devourer has more than one form. Now, here's something that can very easily and has often happened with Christians, right? We withhold our tithe. And in the mystery of things, sometimes we end up less than what we otherwise would have had because we use our money and our resources to indulge appetites for things we don't really need. We flitter away our resources on non-essentials, addictions, and dependencies. socially acceptable ones, develop. And then we find there's not enough for our needs and certainly not enough to give much away. That's the work of the devourer. I suspect that this is in part, this tendency in part explains why, despite the fact that we have more wealth today, our tithing percentages are half of what they were during the Great Depression. The act of tithing, says Malachi, engages God to rebuke the devourer, because tithing is an act of faith, and to live in faith is to be connected to God, and to be connected to God is to experience inner renewal by the Holy Spirit of God. And what is that renewal? It means that God frees us from greed, from gluttony, from materialism, and from stinginess. That's the deep work of God. That is God's rebuke of the devourer that gets into us and the devouring spirit that is pervasive in our insatiably consumeristic culture. God promises provision and protection for those who tithe. That's what God says later in the Bible in Matthew chapter 6, that's what God incarnate says. This is what Jesus says, oh you of little faith, do not be anxious about what we shall eat or drink or wear. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Seek first his kingdom and he will provide these things for you. And so a mighty question is before us all today. Will we test God? Will we rely on the one who is rich? Yet became poor that those who are poor, you and me, might become rich in experiencing God's grace and God's provision. Will we test the power of the one who is resurrected from the dead? If God could do that, why do we doubt that He cannot sustain us in sufficiency and for generosity? As one of your pastors, I want you to test Him. I want you to take up that offer that's in verse 10. Now, when it comes to tithing, and I know this as much as anyone in this room a lot of grace has to be applied abundantly to our hearts. That's the precondition, grace that overcomes fear, grace that creates generosity, grace that relocates our sense of security. The two promises that we've just read in this passage are expressions of that grace. I want you to ponder these things deeply, and I want all of us, everyone who calls himself a part of this community, to commit to tithe in some way, shape, or form in 2016. Remember tithing should happen on anything that we earn but it doesn't have to be 10%. Right? If you don't earn much, maybe 5 or 10 bucks, work out something before God, come talk to us about it. Believe me, I've been in those in those shoes. Now I know there are people right now in this room who are very frightened by this, right? You worry there won't be enough. I know I've been there. I lived there for several years in fact. But I trust God. And I trust that God will do what he says here. My confidence is not wishful thinking, right? Because God has proved that trust on many, many, many occasions in my life. Like a scared child, God has led me out of a place of fear and anxiety to a place of assurance and poise. And You remember earlier in the sermon, we were talking about faith that counts. It's got to be tangible, just like that. My trust in God needs to be tangible right now. I trust that God can do what he says in these verses for me and for you. And so let me raise the stakes here. Let me demonstrate my confidence that God will keep his word here. If you start practicing tithing this year and somehow because of your tithing you find yourself destitute, you find yourself impoverished, you find yourself unable to meet your basic needs, you come to me. I've talked to Alistair. I've talked to my wife. We'll be ready to help you. We are ready to put ourselves on the line as a sign of our confidence that God will deliver because we're sure that he will keep character. We're sure that he will show up in a way that puts all those fears and anxieties and even the risks that are involved in in tithing. He'll dissipate all of that. I cannot preach to you about Christian faith if we don't operate it in ourselves. That is our commitment. The faith that God is asking of all of us in tithing is no different than than the faith that's required for me to say what I just said. It's no different. It's built on the assurance that God is capable and desirous to make provision for us. Martin Luther once said this, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands I still possess. I'm coming to know this and I want you to know it too. So let's not be a church that robs God. Let's make change, let's make it again, let's make it permanent, and let's make it pervasive.